0: Well, good morning, everybody. How are you guys doing this morning? Awesome. So glad to hear it. (laughs) I'm imagining everybody said great really loudly, and in my ears, that's why. My name's Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here at Trailhead, and uh, I'm really excited to open up the Word with you this morning. In fact, we're going to jump in right at the top. We're going to go ahead and read our passage, um, and then we'll get into the rest of the message. So if you want to open up your Bibles, we're in the book of Psalms. And we're going to be in Psalm 119, and that starts on page 512. Um, Psalm 119. When I say 512, that's if you use one of the hardback Bibles under the seat in front of you. If you have your own Bible, it's probably on a different page. I don't know what page it would be on. But uh, if you want to use one of those hardback Bibles, feel free to do so. And if you don't own a Bible, we would highly encourage you to take that one with you. Let that be our gift to you um, so you can take it home. And read it for yourself. So Psalm 119, we're just going to read the first eight verses this morning. um, And really, we're just going to focus on the first three verses today. But I want to read one through eight. So Psalm 119, would you follow along with me as I read? Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the way, in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame. Having my eyes fixed on all your commandments, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. The word of the Lord. We, uh, we're going to spend the next four weeks here in Psalm 119 um as we kind of come to the end of our series on the book of Psalms for the summer. Um, but don't worry, because it's a big book, so there's a lot that we can cover here. In fact, we won't cover the entirety of Psalm 119. But this morning we're just going to focus on this very beginning of uh, the Psalm. And I want to start with a little question, and this is a real question, so I want to ask you to raise your hand if you've ever how many of you have ever heard the term spiritual warfare. Has anybody ever heard that term before? It's okay if you haven't. Don't, don't be embarrassed if you haven't, but if you have, a lot of you have, it looks like. Um, it's okay if you've never heard that term, because actually that, that term, that phrase, spiritual warfare, is not in the Bible, actually, um, but, but it's a term that gets used quite a bit in churches. Let me say this, whether you've ever heard it before or that was the first time you've ever heard that phrase, spiritual warfare, think in your head, you don't have to say this out loud, but think in your head, what comes to mind when you hear that phrase? Like, what do you think of? What do you picture? What do you imagine when you hear spiritual warfare? When I hear that phrase, the first thing that comes into my mind is something kind of like this. Um, This is, I I didn't paint this myself, Um, but, and in fact, the more I looked at it, I kind of thought, this is a guy from Monty Python. But um, this kind of idea of, right, like the the soldier, the warrior, the ancient kind of warrior fighting against flaming arrows Um, maybe for you, when you think of it, you think more like this, next one, um, this, I'm sorry, I just, that's, anyway, um, so maybe that's the kind of image you get, it's a, it's a wrestling match between Jesus and Satan, and, or for some of you, maybe for a few of you of a certain age, what really pops in your head is the classic 1993 NES game, Spiritual Warfare, in which, uh, you collect fruits of the spirit like pears and then throw them at demons to transform them into praying angels. And anybody? No? Okay. Sorry. <laughs> that, me neither. I promise. <laughs> um, whatever it is. I mean, here's the thing. Okay. We kind of laugh at some of this stuff because this is a lot of times what we do with church and with the Bible is we take these ideas, these concepts, and we kind of I I don't know, try to make them seem really exciting or real fun or whatever it is, and it gets a little cheesy, it gets a little corny, to the point where we can't even use the phrase, for some of us can't even hear that phrase without all this baggage associated with it, and really kind of having a hard time believing, is this even really a thing? Like spiritual warfare, that sounds so like, for some people that sounds so corny and so cheesy and like, I'm just, I have a hard time even thinking about, but, but the phrase is not in the Bible. However, it is in scripture taught that we really are, as Christians, as believers, fighting, and our fight, our battle is of a spiritual nature. In fact, uh, can you put up Ephesians chapter 6? This is Uh, in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul wrote this, for we, and he's talking about believers, Christians, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So here's what Paul is saying. There is such a thing as a spiritual battle that's happening. And those of us who are Christians, those of us who are believers, we believe in the supernatural. That's a part of being a Christian. Because we believe that we have a supernatural Savior, Jesus. And we believe that there's a Holy Spirit who indwells us supernaturally in a way that we can't see. And so if we believe that, it's not a stretch to believe, as the Bible teaches, that there are other spiritual forces, other unseen forces who are negative, who are hostile towards us. Most of the time, and and as Paul says here, there are multiple, but our understanding from Scripture is that there's this one specific enemy that we have. We refer to him by different names, Satan, the devil, sometimes just the enemy. And Scripture teaches he's against us as believers. Now, what does that mean? To say that we're in a spiritual battle, to say that we have an enemy who's against us, what does that mean? What is he doing? Is it like, because, okay, it's not like those pictures, right? We're not arm wrestling against Satan. What is actually going on? So let me back up a little bit. As believers, if you're a believer, if you've trusted in Jesus, the Bible tells us that when you believed, like the moment that you had That moment of belief, which for some of you was like a moment in history and time that you remember, like you can say exactly when this happened for some of you, it kind of happened gradually, but scripture teaches there was a moment when those of us who are believers were transformed, that we moved from dead to alive spiritually, that we moved from, to use scriptural terms, lost to found. And when that happened, we received, you received when you believed in Jesus, you received all the benefits, all the blessings, all of the inheritance of being adopted into the family of God. So if you've ever heard that phrase, we're children of God. We're children who have been adopted in as brothers and sisters of the, the first son, Jesus. And we have, by being members of the family, by being children of God, we have an inheritance that is totally set, totally secure. We have forgiveness for our sins that we cannot lose. We have an inheritance that we cannot lose. All of that is set. It's secure. So we have an enemy. Our enemy cannot take away our inheritance. He cannot take away any of the blessings of being believers. We have, as believers, all of the blessings of being adopted into God's family. Love, joy, peace, comfort, security, all of that. We have all of that. But we don't always feel all of that, do we? You don't always feel loved. You don't always feel secure. You don't always feel joyful. And that's our enemy's goal. He can't steal our inheritance as believers. He can't. It's untouchable. But he can certainly steal our joy. Let me ask you this, this morning. Has your joy been stolen? How joyful do you feel? Is it possible that our enemy has attacked you and taken away the joy. We saw this last week. We looked at Psalm 51. David writes, he prays, he calls out to God, and he asks God to restore the joy of his salvation. We said it then, I'll say it again. We can't lose our salvation, we can lose our joy. But Paul says we're in a fight, we're in a battle. And it's not a battle, this is the thing, and this is what I'm trying to make clear here. It's not a battle for our salvation. It's not a battle for our soul. It's not a battle for our inheritance. But there is a battle for our joy. The joy we feel accompanying our inheritance. It's a battle for our hope. How do we fight for that? How do we fight for joy well first thing we have to understand is how does our enemy attempt to steal our joy let me show you again this is again the new testament this is jesus talking in the book of john jesus is talking he's talking to the uh, another group of humans but he's talking about their um, relationship with these spiritual forces and he says this you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He, the devil, was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he, again, the devil, lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Here's what Jesus is saying. The devil, the word he uses here, devil, Um, is uh, a Greek word diabolos, where we get the word diabolical. It literally means the liar or the accuser. What Jesus is saying is, Satan, the devil, our enemy, his main weapon, his chief weapon, is lies. If he, the devil, if our enemy can get us Believing something that isn't true. What we believe will impact how we feel. And based on how we feel will change what we do. Our emotions follow our beliefs and our actions follow our emotions. And he will lead us if he can get us believing untruth Then he will get us walking away from the path towards life and towards joy. Let me give you an example of this, okay? Um, Back up, can you back up to that scripture from Ephesians? Um, Here we go, okay. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Okay, so this is what the scripture says. Our enemy wants us to believe a lie. And so what he does is he pushes in and he tells us this. No, he tells us our enemy is not spiritual forces. Our enemy is other people. Okay, this is a lie. But he plants that lie in us that we are opposed to, we should be opposed to other. There are other people who are against us. That the people who disagree with you, that's your enemies. That the people who don't look the same as you, don't act the same as you, don't talk the same as you, those are bad, evil people. And and you say, what do you mean he lies? Like he whispers in your ear? Well, no, he works through. I mean, think about how much of our culture is, is saturated with that idea that anybody who disagrees with you is your enemy. And that if you don't see eye to eye with someone, that other person is evil. And that your goal should be to destroy them, to own them to put them down, to quash them, to silence them, because other people, people are our enemies. And if we believe that, and the more we believe that, then those other people become less and less people to us. We start to look at other people as subhuman, because they don't agree with us, they don't vote like us, they don't whatever, the same way we do, And our enemy wins. Not because we lose our inheritance from God, not because we lose our salvation, nothing like that, but we start to view other people as less than people. And when you view someone as less than a person, it pretty much rules out the number one command that God gave us as believers, which is to love. How do you love someone that you view as As the total epitome of evil on earth. But if he can get us believing that lie, then he can push us away from the path to life and to joy. How joyful do you feel? How joyful do you feel when you're online and reading about all those those bad people and all the bad things those bad people are doing and all the bad things those bad people believe in? That's not joyful. Right? How? I mean, let me put it this: How rare is it for you to put down your phone after all your scrolling and be like, "I feel so happy now. I'm so full of life and joy. I'm so glad I read all those opinion articles. They made me just feel so good." Like, why? That's not the path to joy. Let me give you another example, real quick. Um, And it also goes with social media, and I'm not trying to like, ooh, that's the worst thing ever. It's the second worst thing ever. But how often do you find yourself scrolling through your feed and looking at all your friends or all your relatives or all the other moms from the classroom or all the other guys at work or whatever and thinking to yourself, man, their lives are so much better than mine. Oh man, if I could just have kids who acted like their kids, if I could have a vacation like the vacation they just had, if I, could, if I could live in a house like the one they live in, all of that, all of that comparison is a lie from our enemy. And again, he's using our culture to, to teach us this that your success your joy your happiness comes from having as good as or better than what other people have that you have to know this is the lie and you a lot of us believe this lie that you have to know what other people are doing so you can compare yourself and if you measure up you're doing okay and if you don't then you're not good enough and you have to do better how joyful is that there's no joy But there's no joy because that's coming from a lie, and it's a lie from our enemy. You have to compare yourself. You have to be as good as. You have to be better than. So what do we do? How do we fight back against our enemy? This is, like, pretty easy, so I'm going to ask you to, to answer this, or fill in the blank here. If our enemy's weapon is lies then the weapon we would fight back with would be, yes, you got it. I knew it. I knew you'd get it. Look at this. This is John. This is Jesus again. This is actually earlier in the story, um, John chapter eight, but Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know, say it with me, the truth and the truth will set you free. I'll bet you've heard that before. I'll bet even if this is your first time in church, I'll bet you've heard the truth will set you free. So I just want to tell you, Jesus said that. That was Jesus who said the truth will set you free. And what he's saying is really straightforward and really simple. In the battle for your mind, you have... <laughs> there is... Let me, sorry, let me say this the right way. There is a battle... For your mind, your enemy has a weapon and it's lies. You have a better weapon and it's the truth. And the truth is the only weapon that can defeat lies. How do you get to it? How do you use it? How do you access the weapon to fight the battle for your mind? This is where this is really, really good news. God, holy God, omnipotent God, the source of all truth, the one who knows everything about the universe, because he created the universe. So he knows all about it. He knows how it works. He knows what is true. In fact, he himself is truth. He, God, has spoken. To us through individuals throughout history who wrote it down, and we have recorded for us the truth. It's the scripture, it's God's word. We have God's word, we have the truth, and we have the privilege of being able. To read it. All of which brings us to Psalm 119. So this week, like I said, we're going to spend four weeks in Psalm 119. This week is kind of an introduction. That's a hard word. Um, and so I just want to set this up this week and look at just at the beginning of Psalm 119. But Psalm 119 is, uh, here we go, a little trivia here. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. Um, It's exactly the center of the Bible. That's literally just trivia. You do not need to know that. It will benefit you absolutely zero. But but it is the longest chapter in the Bible, and it's interesting to know it's all about God's Word. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. It's about the Bible. It is, in effect, we've said all all summer long as we've been looking at the Psalms, these are all songs. And we've talked about the different genres: Psalms of lament, Psalms of confession, Psalms of praise, Psalms of thanksgiving. All the, I would classify this this Psalm Psalm one nineteen is generally considered to be almost like a psalm unto itself. So, what genre is it? I'm going to say it's a love song. It's a love song to God's word. <laughs> And so, as we look at Psalm 119 over the next four weeks, I want to start today with a very, very simple, very simple exhortation. Okay, this is the bottom line for today. This is the the main point. Because we can read the Word, we should read the Word. This is the point of the sermon today. Read your Bible. A little more on Psalm 119. And this is, again kind of trivia, kind of not. Every verse in Psalm 119, if you flip through and just look at it, if you have it open up there, you'll see it's 176 verses. It takes multiple pages. It's really long. Every single one of those 176 verses mentions a word, a synonym for God's word for the Bible. Law, testimony, God's way, his precepts, his statutes, his commandments, his rules, all of those, and as you read through, all of those are different synonyms that all refer to the Bible, God's word. The whole chapter, the whole song is an acrostic poem. You know what an acrostic is? This is like old middle school language arts stuff. An acrostic is that poem where every line starts with a a letter that oftentimes when we see an acrostic, when you read down, like, I should have put an example up. Um Sorry, having regrets in the middle of the sermon. You don't want me to know. Um, every line starts with a letter that often spells out a word. So you did it. I'll bet you did this in elementary school. You wrote your name going down, and then you wrote a word for each letter of your name that described you. Did any of you ever do that? A couple of you. Okay. I, um, that's an acrostic. That's not what this does. But this acrostic, Psalm one nineteen, each set of eight verses is called a strophe. Each strophe. Every line of that strophe, each of those eight lines, all starts with the same letter. And you look at it and you say, well, no, that doesn't work because in Psalm 119 it goes, blessed, blessed, who? Remember, the Bible, this Psalm was not originally written in English. It was written in Hebrew. So a couple things get lost in the translation. Okay? So each strophe is an acrostic That starts with the first, uh, each line starts with a letter, and it goes alphabetically through the entire Hebrew alphabet. So, the first eight verses, what we're looking at today. Every line in chap, in verses one through eight, if we could read them in the original Hebrew, starts with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph. And then the next eight all start with the first, or the second letter, Beth, and on and on. And so that's why, here's a little, why am I telling you all this? A little bit, point of explanation is you look at Psalm 119 and you see these different headings in. A lot of Bibles put the headings in, and you're like, what do these words mean? Um, those are the Hebrew letters that each of the lines in that strophe start with. Make sense? Okay. That may be really helpful and beneficial to you, or it may be totally meaningless trivia. Either way, if you're ever in like a Bible trivia uh, tournament, which I know happens a lot. You just find yourself, it's like a Friday night, and you're like, how did I get here? Oh, well, at least I know Psalm 119 is an acrostic, and I know what that means. So there you go. All right, um, I think it's interesting, but I also think it's powerful to know because the first word in the first line that starts with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph, if we could read it in the original Hebrew would be the word aeser, which is translated here as blessed. We might use the word, and could use very accurately, use the word happy or joyful. This huge, massive, epic love song about God's words starts with the word happy. Because... There is joy. There is joy to be found from reading God's word. Oftentimes, we think of it as it's a discipline. It's something we have to do. I'm I'm a Christian, and so I've got to read the Bible. They tell me I'm supposed to read the Bible, and so I'm going to try to read the Bible, and I can barely read the Bible, but I'm going to make myself. And what, what the psalmist is saying here, from the start, first word, First letter, absolute foundation. God's word makes us happy. Happy. And one thing you're going to notice in these first three verses, I'm going to read them again, is they have a very absolute nature. Listen to this. Blessed are those whose way is blameless. Happy are those whose way is blameless, as in nothing bad at all. Nothing anybody could point to and say, that's wrong. Absolutely zero sin. Absolutely anything that somebody could say, ac- accuse you of. Happy are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed or happy are those who keep his, God's, testimonies. Who seek him with their whole heart, absolute whole heart, all of it. Undivided devotion. I'm not following God, but also a little bit interested in money. I'm not following God, but also trying to become famous. I'm not following God, but also really, really want him to ask me out or her to ask me out. I'm wholeheart, all in, 100%. Everything is all about God. Who also, verse 3, do no wrong, none at all. Absolute moral perfection, no wrong, but walk in his ways. It's very, very Absolute. It's not really to me, I'm going to tell you the truth, all that encouraging, honestly. How can I be happy? Well, you'll be happy if you're absolutely blameless, if you follow God 100% devoted with your whole heart and you do nothing wrong. Great! I'll do that. How is that working out for you? It's not going so good for me, I'll be honest. Now, two things to recognize about that, okay? Number one. Technically, it's true. I mean, it's true. If you could live a life totally blameless, heart fully 100% devoted to God, and never sin at all, you would be really happy. You really would. You would be so joyful. But, as most of us live here on this side of reality, this sounds like just kind of what's the point? Here's the point. We should understand and recognize there is joy in following God. And even though we struggle, and even though none of us, none of us ever gets it perfect, that's not a reason, it's not a reason to just throw up our hands and be like, well, whatever. I guess God's wrong. Because he says if I follow him, I'm going to have joy, but... I don't have a lot of joy, so he's probably, no. If we could be perfect, and so let me just tone that down a little bit. Okay, let's, let's get the idea of perfection. Obviously, the psalmist is using a little bit of hyperbole, but there's also a, a truth here, which is this. The more we follow God's way, the happier we are. The more devoted our hearts are to God, the more in line we are with his rules, his laws, his commandments, the better our lives become. So we get this, we can get this all or nothing, and it sounds very all or nothing here. But there's a truth that even, I used to, I, and you may have heard this before, preachers will say partial obedience is disobedience. Eh, kind of. But following God even imperfectly, is better than not following God at all. Okay. But there's more, but there's more. There's a lot more here that I want you to see. When we talk about God's law, God's word, God's rules, God's commands, all those different synonyms, those are all synonyms for God's word, the Bible. The Bible is a lot more, a lot more than just rules to live by. And that's, that's the key that I want you to understand. The Bible is a story. It's God's story, and it's a story about us. And it's a story about joy. When we use the phrase God's word, we're not just talking about the rules that God has said, you should do this, you should do this, you should do this. Those are a part, a part of a really big story. When we use the phrase God's word, what we're talking about is God's revelation to us, him saying this is how The the world works. Think about this, okay? Just take, for example, one of the words um, that that Psalm 119 uses to talk about God's word, which is laws. Okay? There are multiple meanings to the word law. One is like these these rules that are passed by governing bodies, and they employ people to enforce those rules, and if you break the rules, there's going to be a punishment. That's one, one definition of a law. But we can also talk about laws, not just as rules to be followed, but as a description of what actually is of the truth. Like, for example, the law of gravity. Now, you know the law of gravity was not, there wasn't a council on gravity that got together and passed the law of gravity, and if you follow the law of gravity and walk on the ground then you'll be okay but if you defy if you break the law of gravity if you start floating somebody a a gravity policeman is going to show up and fine you for breaking the law that's not the kind of law so when you hear the word law you can think about it in terms of God's law is like him saying you better do this you better do this or else okay but really the better way of thinking about God's law is God just saying look this is the way the world works this is what is true And what we look at as rules, you better do this, God says you should do this. God's just saying, no, look, this is the path to life because this is what is true. This is what is better. This is the way the world should function. And within that, or those exist within a big, big story. All of the Bible is God's story. God's law His description of the world is the story of redemption. It's the story of us humans breaking God's commands, his description, his telling us this is how the world works, and we come in as humans and say, no, it's not, I got this, I'm better, I know better than you. And we deserve for that, we do deserve condemnation because we've done things that will lead to our own destruction, but God in his love sent Jesus to live a perfect life, to follow all the rules, to follow all the commands, that, that we could look at verses 1-3 through 3 of Psalm 119 and say, Blessed are those whose way is blameless. Whose way is blameless? Jesus, who walk in the law of the Lord. Who fully walked in the law of the Lord? Jesus. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies. Did you do that? Have you done that perfectly? No, but Jesus did. Jesus did that who seek him with their whole heart. Who has a heart fully, 100% devoted to God? Only Jesus, only Jesus has ever done this. Who do no wrong. Who has ever lived on this earth and done no wrong? Just Jesus. That's it. He's one of one. And so he came and he lived the perfect life that all of us should have lived. And we still, humans still, we rejected him, the embodiment of God's law. We rejected him, crucified him. But through that crucifixion, he took the punishment we deserved on himself. And he rose again in victory over death. And he promises, he promises that anybody who trusts in that sacrifice will be, like we said at the beginning, adopted into God's family. And one day, one day will receive the inheritance of a fully restored, fully perfected, fully made new world, and living and ruling together with him as his brothers and sisters. That's the story. Every other story, where it intersects with that story, there's truth, and where it diverges from that story, there are lies. And all around us, every day, we're hearing and telling each other stories. And what we need to do and what we need to understand and what we need to remember is that where the stories we hear overlap with what's revealed in God's Word, there's truth, and we can celebrate that. And anywhere they separate from what's revealed in God's Word, they're lies, and we need to be discerning. and We need to be careful, and we need to reject the lies. We as believers, if we want to be happy, if we want to have joy, if we want to win the battle for our minds, we need to be full of the truth. Because you have stories shot at you constantly, all day long, all day long you're being told stories. If you aren't filled up with the truth, then you'll believe the lies we need to be I love this phrase um, I don't remember who I somebody said it um, and it was so good I wish I remember it so I could give them credit for it but we need to be as believers so full of the Bible that when the world shakes us up we puke out the truth I think that's a beautiful picture a beautiful picture of what it means to be so immersed in God's word So fluent, if you want to think about it this way, as a language, so fluent in speaking the gospel that when we hear other competing views of what is good, it becomes obvious to us, no, that's not good. No, that's not true. That lies become blatant because they're so different from the truth. How do we do that? By reading the word. I need to read the word now that all sounds good that all sounds great but i know for a lot of you many i've had i've had a lot of these conversations and and so i know there are a lot of you who feel like that sounds great but i don't know how If you tell me to read the bible okay that's fine and you told me here's a hardback bible take it home it's our gift to you read it and i'm like okay and you open it up and you're like what what do i do What do I read? What does it mean? Because this book is different. It's different than any other book. And there are a lot of you, a lot of us, I'll raise my own hand, who can get intimidated. And you're like, I can read this over and over, but it doesn't really matter how much I read it if I don't understand it. Do we have that? um, Okay. Does anybody know what this is? Okay, so I'm in trouble now. Um, I know that's what it's called. It's called the quadratic equation. I can technically read this, okay? I could tell you what each of these symbols means. I have no clue what this actually means, okay? So some of you do, and I'm so in awe of you, okay? Um, And you can explain it to me much later. Um, But I remember this from... What, what class do you learn this in? Algebra? Is this algebra? Is this calculus? What is it? I don't even know. Is this algebra? Okay. <clears throat> if you told me, you really need to know math. Here, read this. And you gave me this, I could technically read it. I would get nothing from it. Okay. Here's my point. For many of you, for many of us, I could give you the Bible and I could say, here, read this. And for you, reading the Bible is like looking at this. You can read the words, but the meaning, you're just like, what does this even mean? So here's what I want to do today, okay? I'm going to give you real fast, because I know I'm getting short on time. And so when I say it, I'm, I'm going to give you seven tips, but don't worry, I'm going to go fast, I promise. Seven quick tips on reading your Bible, okay? For those of you, especially for those of you who are just starting out, okay? Seven quick tips. Please understand this. These are my tips. A lot of these come from my own personal experience. A few of them, I'm going to say, are biblical principles, but some of them are literally just my own personal experience. So I just want to give these as just like just a way to get started, just some stuff to think about, okay? Um, If you want to reject half of these, the ones, like I said, that are just my personal experience, that's fine as long as you read the Word. Read the Word. Fill up your mind with the truth. That's the bottom line. Okay, But if you struggle with that or if the Bible is intimidating to you, here's a couple things. And I'm going to start with two at the same time, number one and two. Number one, get a translation that you understand. And number two, um, I highly encourage that you get a study Bible. Let me explain both of those. Number one, I just said this earlier today. The Bible wasn't originally written in English. It's written in, in Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. Okay, You do not need to learn those languages in order to know the truth. We have really, really good English translations of the Bible. They're not all the same. They're written at different reading levels. They were translated at different times in history. Sometimes, sometimes, some people can get really territorial, and some people can get really, um, I'm trying to be really careful, nitpicky about which translation you use, because there's going to be some minor differences. Okay, Here's what I want you to understand. All the major English translations of the Bible are good. They're good. There's going to be some variation here and there. There's none of them that are going to turn you into a heretic because you're reading the wrong translation, okay? The ones we have here, it's called the ESV, the English Standard Version. It's a good translation. It's not the only translation of the Bible, And so when you're here at Trailhead and you hear us reading and you're like, that's a little tough for me. There are easier versions to understand. Find one you understand. Read a version of the Bible you can understand. Even then, even if you're reading a version of the Bible that you understand the the sentence structure and the vocabulary, there's still gonna be some things because again, this book was written, God gave his revelation and it was written down two, three thousand years ago. So there's cultural stuff that you're not going to be familiar with. There's historical stuff that you're not going to know. And so that's why I recommend getting a good study Bible. A study Bible, if you're not familiar with it, is going to have the text of the Bible, and then it's going to have a bunch of notes. A good study Bible is going to give you notes on the history, on the connections between different parts of the Bible and how they fit together, okay? Um, And there are lots of these, and I could recommend a few. I want to tell you a story, okay? And the reason I put these two together is because for me, personally, and I said, this. some of this is personal observation for me. These two things, I'm not overstating this, were transformational for me. Transformational. When I was younger, a group in a a church, um, and I'm not saying this is not a negative thing, but they were all in on the King James Version of the Bible. King James Version is great. It's beautiful. It's poetic. It's almost Shakespearean in the way it's written. Now, on the other side of having been an English teacher for years, love it. Love it. But for me as a kid, as a kid, really, really hard to read, really, really hard to understand. I could go to church. The pastor would preach from it. He would explain a lot of the words. He would define some of the words, English words. You know, I'm putting up like telling you, here's a Hebrew word. He was like, here's an English word. It means this. If he did that, I could understand it. But when I would get on my own and try to read it, I was lost all the time. So fast forward, I'm on my own, still fairly young in my 20s. Uh, had gone through some stuff and was like, I, want, I need to get back into, I need to read the Bible. I just, I'm struggling. And so I bought, this was huge for me. And you, you'd have to understand how much it was drilled into me. King James, King James, King James. I bought an NIV Bible. And was like, okay, I'm not going to tell anybody about this, okay? But I'm just going to keep it. But it was an NIV study Bible. And it was called, and again, I'm not like promoting or advertising, but it was called the Quest Study Bible. And it was laid out um, with the text on one side of the page and literally questions and answers on the other side of the page. And I started reading it. And because I could understand the language and because there were questions and answers being, answered, being like that I could read right alongside, totally transformative for me. The first time, the first time that I could ever remember reading the Bible, understanding it, and actually starting to transform the way I thought about things. Now it started to get tricky because I started reading it, I started understanding it, and then I started being confronted by it and realizing, oh wait, this goes against some things I was believing, and we're going to get into that next week, but reading the Bible can actually be kind of hazardous because it could confront you and you'll have to make a choice. We'll talk about that next week. But I highly recommend a translation you can understand, a good study Bible. If you have questions, I want to move fast. If you have questions about those, follow up. Number three, if you need to, listen to it. Again, Sometimes people can be like, no, you have to be reading on paper the Word of God. You should understand that much of the Bible was transmitted orally. Prior to the printing press, the way people engaged with Scripture was by hearing someone else read it to them and memorizing huge, huge portions of it. So if the only time you have to read to engage the Word is like on your drive while you're doing other stuff around the house, Get an audible or an audio version of the Bible and listen to it. Get it into you in any way you can. Number four, um, I highly recommend you have some kind of a plan. Don't just pick up the Bible and be like, well, I'm going to open it up and Hosea sounds good. Let's see what that's about. Go either start to finish or pick a specific plan. We have Psalms reading plans out there. The one thing I will say, and this is just, this is my experience, I really like to use a plan that doesn't have dates on it solely because. There's plans that are like, here's how you read through the Bible in a year. On January 1st, you read this. On January 2nd, you read this. It's really discouraging for me when I do that because I miss days. And if it's August and you're reading, you know, the reading for March 3rd, you're going to be like, why am I doing this? I can't do this. But if it's just a plan. And your goal is just, I'm going to read the whole New Testament, or I'm going to read the whole Bible. It doesn't matter how long it takes. The goal is not to get it done in a set amount of time. Lots of people make a New Year's resolution, which we can talk about them now because it's August, so we can make fun of them. But I'm going to read through the whole Bible this year. Reading through the whole Bible is a very worthy goal. Getting it done within a set amount of time is, that's just for you. Let's be honest. Okay, let's be really honest. That's for your own pride. There's no prize. There's no award. You're not extra holy if you get it done by December 31st. Okay? Take however long it takes you to read and understand it. But it is really helpful to have a plan. Literally just, I mean, if your plan is just, I'm going to read the whole thing, then read as much as you can one day and pick up where you left off the next day. I'm just saying don't just jump around. Okay? Those are all, those are all just my own personal experience. These next three, I would go a little deeper and say, a little further and say, these are important. The next one is this. Don't expect an epiphany every time you read the Bible. You know what an epiphany is? That aha moment, that oh, that I read the verse and then all of a sudden, now it all makes sense. Now I see something I've never seen before. Don't expect that every day. Don't expect that. Don't expect it. Because the Bible, God's word is the truth but it's the accumulation of that truth in your heart over time. It's that drip, drip, drip. We've talked about it in that way before. Is what really makes the difference. <clears throat> S- somebody, um, again, I'm, I'm doing a lot of this quoting somebody today. I apologize. You, know, you do that though, right? I'm not the only person who's like, I heard this somewhere and I don't remember. where. Somebody share this with me. If you think of the scriptures like food, okay, Every meal you sit down to eat, you're not looking for it to be the greatest meal you've ever had in your life. Now, it's nice if it's good, but some days you just have to grab breakfast on the fly because you need to eat breakfast, right? And if somebody asks you, what did you have for breakfast three weeks ago on Tuesday? You're probably not going to be like, oh yeah, that was the biscuits and gravy with it. You're going to be like, I don't know. Did you eat breakfast three weeks ago on Tuesday? I guess, probably. How do you know? Because I'm still alive and healthy. So if you literally go without eating for weeks and months on end, you're going to have serious major problems. That doesn't mean every single meal has to be this great culinary masterpiece. If we think about scripture in that way, every time you sit down to read, it's not going to be a life transformative moment, but it's the accumulation over time. It's God's word dripping truth into your life that builds and builds and builds. Next one. This is huge. Pray. When you read the Bible, again, the Bible is different than other books. Okay? You sit down to read a novel, you don't need to pray about it. But when you approach Scripture, you can have the most easy-to-understand translation. You can have the greatest study Bible. It answers all the questions. You still will get nothing, nothing from it if the Holy Spirit does not interpret it to your heart. Because there's a world of difference between reading the Bible for knowledge up here and reading the Bible for transformation in here. And only God, only God can move what's up here down to here. There are a whole bunch, a whole whole bunch of atheists who have read the entire Bible and have not been changed. The Bible on its own, God's word is powerful. But the power comes from the Holy Spirit applying it to our hearts so when you read pray ask God to open up his word to show you what he wants to show you to brand it in your heart to expose the lies you're believing to fill you up instead with the truth last one look for Jesus so I don't know how you are when you read a book or watch a movie or whatever. Some people, uh, I know people who like when they're reading a book, they'll open up and read the last page or the last chapter first. Any of you? Any of you? I'm okay. No judgment. No judgment. Okay. Yeah. to be honest. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not. I love to be surprised. I get so mad when somebody spoils it for me. Like angry mad. It's a bit of a problem. I don't like spoilers. Okay. Don't approach the Bible that way. Okay? The Bible is one big story. Here's the ending Jesus wins. Okay? All of the Bible is the story of our fall and God's pursuit of fallen people and sending Jesus to redeem a fallen people to a loving God. That's the whole story. As you read the Bible, and the reason I'm spoiling it for you, if you didn't know that, is because you need to be, you should be, you will be much, much more impacted if you look for Jesus. If you read the Bible and assume what a lot of people, the way a lot of people approach the Bible, that it's a series of different stories, different stories, different songs, that all kind of have some similar themes about God, but it'll be really disjointed and really hard to get into and to fully understand and really to be transformed by. It's when you understand this whole thing is a story about Jesus and about his love and his sacrifice for us. And all of the other stuff, all the commands, all the rules, all the stories, they all fit in that story. That's when it gets transformational. There's joy. There is joy in reading God's word, these are some tips for me. These, I'm going to say, do those. These, whatever. If you, if you can take them, use them. If not, don't. Here's the bottom line Read it. Read it. We have an enemy, he's going for your joy, he's trying to steal your love. And he is going through your mind. You are being exposed to lies all day, every day. You have a weapon. We have the weapon to fight against those lies. Let's use it. Read your Bible. All right. We're going to pray in just a minute. We're going to share communion together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us. We are so limited. We see, I see what's right in front of me. You see it all. You know it all. And you've chosen to speak to me. You've chosen to tell me truths that I would never figure out on my own. Thank you. I pray that we, as a church, we would be a people marked by your truth. That we would love your word. and That we would read your word. And God, I pray specifically this week, if there's somebody here who has struggled to get into your word, that they would find joy in engaging your word, reading your word. That you would open it up to them in a new way. That they could push back against the lies that are stealing their joy that they would find life in your truth. In your name we pray.